2: Who could we pair up with Liz Truss? Richard, oh, Cron- right.
1: Richard Cromwell, someone who wasn't there very long. That's yeah.
2: a, you know, it's Richard Cromwell, he comes across as quite an endearing character, so totally out of his depth, but meant well.
3: Hello and welcome to the pod and today Ian Dale joins me with old friends of the show Miranda Mallins and Stephen Verapen to discuss kings and queens of England and Britain. Ian has edited a new book with contributions from many historians, journalists and politicians and so today is a fun chat about the monarchs. What you heard at the top there was a bit of a daydream we indulge in, pairing up kings or queens with prime ministers. So you might be thinking, who is Liz Well, Google her. But you also might be thinking, why Richard Cromwell? The answer to that is to listen on. Coming up, I've got plenty more great history to come, including James Holland on the Italy campaign during World War II, Romans versus the Goths, female spies, and Winston Churchill. Please do rate, review, and subscribe, and do share with like-minded people. But in the meantime, I'll hand you over to me talking kings and queens of England and Great Britain. Ian Dale, Miranda Mallin, Stephen Virapen, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you on. Thank you. And we're here to talk about, Ian, well, really, it's your book, Kings and Queens, and Stephen and Miranda have contributed to it. So it's it's fantastic to have three authors of monarchs that are listed in the book on. Uh, but, Ian, I, I wanted to – you've written about uh, – you've you've got a, uh, two previous books about presidents and, and prime ministers, and I was reading your introduction – uh, today so I guess kings and queens was the most natural third to do
2: yes of course um, I, it, it's always difficult to choose what to do I, I started I did the prime ministers one because it coincided with the 300th anniversary of Robert Walpole coming to power in uh, 1721 um, so that was an obvious one I, I couldn't really believe that no one had done this format of book before and obviously there have been lots of books on prime ministers but not one that's covered the whole lot of them so I thought, well, I, uh, I'd i never heard of some of them, and I'm sort of quite a political geek. So I thought, well, if I haven't heard of them, I doubt whether if everyone else has. So I decided to recruit a sort of army of uh, people who could write about each one. And that's been the fun thing in putting these books together, finding the contributors, because although, and this one has been probably more difficult than the other two, because it's it's obviously not political, and most of my contacts are in the political world. So I had to get a bit of help to recruit some of the people for this. It's a mixture of uh, academics, historians, journalists, politicians, and I won't say they've all chosen their subjects. There are some, obviously David Starkey, you want him to do Henry VIII. It'd be a bit ridiculous to have him doing an Anglo-Saxon one. So there were some just obvious ones, and there were others, where I just uh, emailed the contributors to the previous book, and I said, look, do you want to bid to do somebody? So I had a bit of a competition for some of them. But then there were other monarchs where, frankly, no one was interested. And I had to then go and search for people. Uh, Somebody's written a biography of a a minor monarch. Obviously, they were my first targets. And then I discovered through Alex Churchill, who runs the History Hack podcast, that there's this brilliant sort of phalanx of young female royal historians. So I've got a lot of them involved. So the, the gender balance of contributors on this book is rather better than for my previous two, I have to say.
3: Oh, well, that's good. Well, we've got one of those uh, female historians with <laughs> us. And Miranda is writing, who's written about Oliver Cromwell in the book. She's an old friend of the the podcast and has a, runs her own podcast and is writing a, a non-fiction book on the, the Cromwell family. But Miranda, was it easy to pack... Cromwell's life into (laughs) because they're not too long each one that's why it's such an enjoyable book to read it's quite a sort of short essay on each each monarch
1: oh my goodness not easy at all um I had about five and a half thousand words for Oliver I was very lucky because Ian gave me more words than some of the other monarchs (laughs) got um so I was I was I got about five and a half thousand words but that is tricky because it's longer than a kind of thumbnail sketch. It really is a detailed essay, and you really want to have some analysis in there and some anecdote and some color. Um, but equally, obviously, it's not nearly as long as a full uh, as a full book or or anything like that. So yes, a lot of the work was condensing down what I'd written before, but um, it was great. It was a great challenge. I really enjoyed it.
3: And Ian, was there some kind of discussion as to whether he, to even include Mister. <laughs>
2: Well, I had a big discussion with myself on this in in a way because I mean, if you're a h- his historical purist, why on earth would you include both not just Oliver but his son Richard in a book of monarchs because they weren't monarchs? I mean, he was offered the crown but re- rejected it. But I just thought it was a bit weird to have a sort of 11 year gap in the book. And I, then I thought to myself, well, what do I really know about Oliver Cromwell? Um, so in the end, I thought, well, sod the purist, let, let's include it. <laughs> Similarly. I've got four ringers in the book, uh, people who weren't formally crowned and don't appear in the list of monarchs normally. But uh, again, and I did this was really through Twitter that people said, well, are you going to include Queen Matilda? Are you going to include King Louis? Are you going to include King Edgar II? Uh, I mean, Lady Jane Grey, I had already decided to include. But so I looked into these three. I mean, I'd vaguely heard of Matilda, but didn't know anything about Louis or Edgar. And again, I thought, well, actually, you know, they did kind of reign, even if only for a few weeks. Mm. So I decided, yeah, let's include them as well. So there are sixty-four different essays on monarchs going right back to Alfred the Great in eight eighty-six. And originally, I was going to start in ten sixty-six because I mean, that's when we're taught history starts. Well, of course, it doesn't. (laughs) And you could make a case for going back further than eight eighty-six, but I think. Alfred the Great probably has the greatest claim to be the first king of England, even though he wasn't really king of all of England.
1: I think the book's all the richer for that decision as well, Ian, because part of the ambition of the book is to trace the development of the monarchy, isn't it? And its endurability and its adaptability. And actually, you can't really tell that story properly unless you have these also rands in in the book. And again, you know, we could go down a very um, uh, windy path about semantics here, What is a monarch? What is a king? Um, But if you're including people who basically ruled as sovereign with 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 sovereign power as head of state, then that definitely includes both of our Cromwells.
2: And one thing I didn't do, though, is include all the Scottish kings because uh, and some people, particularly in Scotland, are a bit annoyed with me for this, but there were so many of them that it would the book would have just been so big. So I thought, well, there's nothing to stop someone in Scotland doing an equivalent of Scottish monarchs, and it would it would be an interesting book. But there's no way in a single volume you could include all of them as well.
3: Well, Stephen, the gauntlet have been laid down there because Stephen's Scottish and will be outraged that there there <laughs> there are no Scottish. Well, there are Scottish kings actually. Well, there are, the are, first, yes. of course.
0: Yes, um, that was the difficulty that I faced, um. I understood completely that it was going to be a book about kings and queens of England and Britain. Um, And I I get that, I get the understanding. And I was actually pleased with the title, Kings and Queens of England and Britain, because it doesn't do that thing, which does annoy me when a book markets itself as kings and queens of Britain, but only means England. So it was very explicit about what it is. And I think that's completely understandable and reasonable. But my difficulty was when... Approaching James, and I had to decide right, how much of his Scottish reign do I tell? This is a book about kings and queens of England and Britain. He came to the throne in 1603 as James I. Do I start there and kind of ignore the 36 years of his life before that? Then I thought, no, I can't because so much of it was formative and. Created the king that became king of England, and of course James's problem really was well when he became king of England, he kind of thought it was a, a lottery win that he could relax and just engage himself in pet projects and things like that. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I'll ask you. You're relatively happy, Miranda, with the way it worked. I think I squeezed in his Scottish reign as a kind of
2: flashback. <laughs> and they went on to no, i i think it i think it did work and I mean, that that was the what i've learned is having done three books in this format there are always and bear in mind each of them has had between 45 and 64 different contributors it's like herding cats basically and there's always a, there's always a couple of really naughty cats who don't deliver on time and there's an even naughtier cat that basically writes a load of crap and um, I'm not going to tell you which one. Oh, desperate in. to know now. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I've in each book, I've had to, shall we say, rescue an essay where somebody didn't really read the brief. And there was one where it just read like a woman's magazine article rather than something. I mean, this is not meant to be an academic book. But, I mean, all the essays have got to be reasonably similar in in style otherwise something really stands out i mean there are a couple that i mean i would say david starkey's actually is is a bit different to the others in that he he sort of picks a theme uh, quite an original theme actually about henry and then sort of explores it in the essay rather than doing a straight biography but I thought, well, that actually works. It's it's original work here, and it, it I don't we don't need to have all of the sort of uh, individual details of, of Henry's life. It just it works on its own merits. Um, but I mean, that's the role of an editor. You 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 you're not writing the book. You you have to make sure that there's a certain standard. And you have to make sure that, that there's a certain degree of continuity of of style. But if you're having 64 people writing, inevitably, they're not going to write in the same style. But I think people understand that. And I wonder how many people, I want to do a survey of this, how many people read the book cover to cover or how many sort of dip in and out and pick different monarchs. So um, there is, in some places, you, you, there is a bit of repetition. So you, you're doing, I don't know, um, one monarch and you describe how they sort of die or sort of have it how their reign meets an end and then the next essay also starts on how the previous one meets an end but you kind of have to keep those in because as I say there'll be a lot of people that don't read it sort of sequentially
3: and so that's an interesting point you, you mentioned about dipping in because if you were to dip in, I'll ask all three of you really. Um uh, if you were to dip in, which monarch would you go for first? And you're not allowed obviously to pick your own one.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, <laughs> I mean I would I would go George the Fourth. I, I always think he's um he's slagged off a little bit too much. But but um Stephen who would you who would you go for first? I would go for Henry the
0: Eighth and I did go for Henry the and I echo what Ian said. I was expecting the Six Wives, I was expecting The Six Wives and They barely form. get a mention, do they? <laughs> no, no, they, that, and that surprised me. Anne Boleyn, yes, Catherine of Aragon, yes. Um, the others I don't think get a mention at all. It's all about Henry's education and educational theory and all of that sort of stuff, and that was interesting because, as you say, it was different. It was unexpected. Hmm. So, yes, I went for Henry VIII, and I was not
3: disappointed. And Miranda,
1: well, I- I'm old school, so I'm reading it cover to cover, um, and I'm in the I'm I'm on Canute at the moment. But I have to say, I really enjoyed uh, the opening. I really enjoyed the first few with Alfred and Edward and Athelstan, and that that old debate about who is the first true king of England. You know, is it Alfred? Is it is it Athelstan? Uh, but also I thought Edward got some good treatment in there, you know, about yeah. build, building on the legacy of Alfred. And, you know, in a sense, you needed one after the other, didn't you? You needed what all of them were doing in, in that sequence in order to get to where we got to today. And I, I I think the format really works with that because it has a sort of drive and a momentum because you're starting each essay afresh. Um, You know, I feel that you you just compulsively keep reading. You just think, oh, I'll just do one more. The next one's just a couple of pages. I'll just read the next
0: one. I, I found that as well, Miranda. One of the things was a real strength that you had these different voices. So when you finish something, you don't have time to get weary of it. You don't have time to get weary of that writer's voice. But even if you do start to flag slightly, there's another one on the next page. And it just freshens things up. It's really good. Yeah, yeah.
3: And Ian, which one would you pick?
2: Um, It's really difficult because I thought that I knew a reasonable amount about the monarchy before I started editing this book. But I quickly found out that I knew very little at all, particularly, well, I knew nothing about the Anglo-Saxon kings. But I didn't actually know much about the uh, Plantagenets and sort of all all that kind of era. And I think um, Edward II, I think, is a really, really interesting one. So I'd either go for him or I think Alex Churchill's portrayal of uh, Victoria was really, really brilliant. And again, it was a bit like David Starkey and that there, there was a lot of originality to it. She, I mean, I, I hesitate to say she looks at Victoria through a sort of feminist lens because that will put people off. But she, she looks... I don't know. I learned stuff and I do know a bit about Victoria, but I learned stuff that I, I wouldn't have ever thought I would have done from this kind of book, in a sense. Um, and I thought I thought it was just a really original take on Victoria's life and importance as a monarch, because I mean, in a way, if you think about it, she was um, the last monarch to have any real influence and power now it it diminished throughout her reign so by the end of her reign we had we had the constitutional monarchy essentially that we have today i mean very very little has changed since then and i i think she is a fascinating figure and i wish that i don't know if you you three watched the itv series of victoria which frustrated the hell out of me in some ways because it was very historically inaccurate in in many ways um but i wish they'd they'd gone right through her reign rather than stop um, I don't even know when they did stop. So sort of halfway through and I suppose it was because they didn't want to get another actress to play her.
3: Yeah. The Hanoverians are, are very interesting, but I mean, Victoria would always probably come up in a top five m- monarchs. Uh, she would be in my top five. And I, I just wondered, I know I've spoken to Stephen before about who, who is sort of the best, um, personification of a monarch. And he picked Henry Eighth, and I, and I, I think I, I, uh, I would always pick Elizabeth the first, I think, probably.
0: I should Um, say, well, yeah, um, I picked Henry VIII not because I think he was nice or admirable or anything like that, but because he kind of embodied that image of monarchy. He was very good at selling the image. But yeah, I think you're right. Elizabeth did that too. Very well.
3: And Miranda would 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 you say um Oliver Cromwell was a kind of okay I'm going to use a modern day phrase for this so please forgive me but a kind of a technocrat monarch in that he was the most able man effectively in the in the sort of game of of this, well, the well the tragedy of the civil war um but but was he sort of quite a technocratic type leader
1: Well, yes and no. Um, I guess in terms of what actually happens and how he comes to power, um, which is quite a few years after the civil war. Um, it is based in a sense on a similar claim of legitimacy, you could argue, to William the Conqueror or Henry the Seventh. It's almost a claim of conquest. It's almost a claim that, you know, as you say, Ollie, you know, he he had risen to top, the top. He was almost the man who could take other people with him, um, which is why he, you know, the army council asks him to become Lord Protector. He doesn't sort of seize it for himself. But the funny thing about Cromwell is that I think, and another reason I think it's great he's in this book, is that actually, although he's nothing but a Fenland farmer with no um, royal blood running through his veins, he has a lot of very kingly qualities. Um, He has enormous presence. Um, He's a wonderful judge of character and of other people, which is such a skill. I mean, he can just build a coalition around him. He can bring a kind of government of all the talents. Um, And he builds bridges. I mean, you know, another historian has said, that actually all the time that Cromwell's in power and actually before he's in power during the civil wars, it's it's one long game of um, managing lots of minority governments and lots of shifting coalition governments all the time. That's actually quite a good way of looking at it. And if you think of that, then, you know, goodness, that that's quite a skill in itself. And then, of course, you know, the whole thing tumbles down really within a year of his death because he really is the key figure um, occupying the throne and holding this relatively peaceful, relatively stable, um, relatively successful governments together. So I see him really as increasingly kingly as his uh, tenure wears on.
0: Um, Miranda, that's one of the things I really liked about your essay. It wasn't just about the presence and everything, but he was living the life of a monarch. He was living in the palaces of monarchs. So he was he was a de facto monarch. So, yeah, I think that really came through in your essay.
2: I think one of the things that also comes to this, several of the contributors, sorry, Miranda is one, in that they are tremendous advocates for their subjects. And uh, I mean, there, there's one essay, I think it's um, is it Mark Fox on Edward III, where he literally starts off, Edward III was the greatest monarch of all time because... <laughs> I did ask people people not to write hagiographies because you've got to include warts and all so even if you genuinely believe that somebody was literally the reincarnation of Jesus Christ you've kind of got to moderate that a bit I have that in the President's book where uh, the former Tory MP Simon Burns he wrote about uh, Kennedy, and he is just a massive fan of the Kennedy family. He knows them all. He knew Teddy Kennedy, and I had to said to him, "Look, I'm very happy for you to write this, Simon, but you can't do a sort of ha- hagiography of them." And to be fair to him, he didn't. And I i mean, Nathan, I, I mean, who wrote Henry the Seventh? He's determined to restore Henry the Seventh's reputation. He genuinely believes he was one of our greatest monarchs, but because he's been eclipsed by Henry the Eighth, no one really remembers him.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm delighted to use the Cromwellian Watson and all phrase there, but yeah. <laughs> the the um uh, the inclusion of Louis, I'm I, I have to say, I'm not happy about. He's he's, he's French. 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 There's no way he should be in this list. In
2: well, a lot of them were partly French. I mean, if you, I mean that that is an argument for not including any of the Georges. You quite happily would want to George. You, you like the George the Fourth one, so at least be consistent. <laughs> James shouldn't be there either. Yeah,
0: He's but, Scottish. Yeah, no, French.
3: But, so, sorry, Stephen, say again.
0: James shouldn't be there either, then. He was Scottish and a quarter French. No,
3: no, I'm I'm targeting the French here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I normally would too,
3: but
1: uh, <laughs> perfectly <it's>, reasonable. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, no, I've been on a crusade to to remove every single French listener that I have. Um, it's going well. It's going well. Um, so, Ian, you mentioned your prime minister's book, which I was wondering. I was thinking when I was looking through the list, I was wondering if you could pair up a, a sort of prime minister with a monarch. Which would make the sort of best uh, best combination?
2: Ooh, um, it's very well, rare that
3: they get on, isn't it?
2: Yeah, let's think about a, a king who was a real warrior who sort of his reputation is mainly made through war. Um, who who would you say was the the best warrior? With Lionheart that...
1: with Lionheart or Henry yeah, yeah, but, yeah
0: absolutely Seth. Really
1: I thought. Mm -hmm. well Uh, pair
2: either of those up with lord palmerston and his sort of gunboat gunboat diplomacy that i think that those two would put because i mean palmerston was always seen as a great foreign secretary but not particularly brilliant prime minister but uh Mm -hmm. so i think he would be a good one to pair up with them who could we pair up with liz truss (laughs) Um, louis
1: uh, Richard, oh, Cro- Richard Cromwell someone who wasn't there very long
2: before.
1: That's a, yeah, they, it's Richard
2: Cromwell he comes across as quite an endearing character so totally out of his depth but meant well uh, I'm not quite sure I'd put that on Liz Truss What you'd want to do is pair
0: up Prime Ministers you dislike with Henry VIII and they won't last particularly long, they won't have a good end
2: I think Lloyd George and Henry VIII, I don't <laughs> think they would have got on because uh, they were a bit too similar possibly
3: Great stuff. The essay from um, Professor Vernon B- Bogdanow. Bogdano, I always get that pronunciation wrong. Yeah, um, I, I do. Um, he uh, he makes a very interesting point about how the the monarchy has endured um, when other European monarchies haven't. And I, I, I just wondered what your thoughts, all three of you, really on on this was. What, why is it that you know we're still writing books about kings and queens thousands of years, or more than a thousand years after after the first?
2: Well, when I decided to do the book, I, I thought about I mean, do we need an introduction of any sort. Um, I, I sort of mulled over getting Buckingham Palace to get the Queen to write an introduction, but I didn't think that was likely, so I didn't bother. And I think Vernon is what, one of our leading constitutional historians and he's he's written on the interrelationship between politics and the monarchy before, I mean, some years ago now. So I I approached him not really knowing him and I thought he might be a bit sort of too grand to, to, to want to do it, but he was such an enthusiast and he delivered exactly what I wanted him to, to try and trace the development of the monarchy uh, to where we are today and try and assess what themes were important. And I think, with that, and he wrote it without having read the essays in the book. But I think given that, he's done a fantastic job in drawing out a lot of the themes which run through the book. And um, I don't think, having edited this book now, I don't think you can really understand British history or British political history without understanding the role of each monarch in it. And... I mean, I wonder how many people, even people who know that, know a bit about history, uh, understand the origins of the English Parliament, uh, understand the development of the Witan and all the rest of it in the the Saxon times, and that there was sort of at least vague consultations taking place between the monarch and, okay, not the people as such, but it it just traces the development of our democracy. And I think it, it does it in a way that no other book could.
3: Yeah. Stephen, looking at the history, particularly the Tudor and Stuart period, do you think that's part of the magic of of the uh, monarchy even today?
0: Well, it's interesting and it's particularly interesting, I think, in terms of why it's endured. Why has it endured? Because it is a big question. I think the reason the monarchy is probably endured, whether one likes it or not, is that it has compromised, unlike certain other monarchies in Europe and the world, has compromised and known when to give ground so uh, one of the things i thought about james is particularly his reign in england he'd have been a very good constitutional monarch but he would have been absolutely horrified by the idea of constitutional monarchy he thought he was all important divinely appointed anointed by god but he would have actually been really good as the kind of advisory figure advising peace which he was very keen on all of this sort of stuff so I think the monarchy's endured because it has given up its powers, essentially, or given up the the more sort of direct powers. Nowadays, if you ask people about the monarchy, I would imagine the majority have a kind of passive support of it, Um, and it's actually kind of interesting from a Scottish perspective because... Not to be nationalistic or anything, but we don't seem, I think maybe because we're more distant from London and the centre of monarchy, we don't seem to go as kind of crazy when it comes to jubilees and events and things like that, for whatever reason. I think it is probably distance,
2: really. You have no sense of fun, Steve, and that's, that's the real problem. Oh, absolutely,
0: unless we drink. I mean, if there was more alcohol introduced <laughs> to these events, it would be I awful. think that,
2: that <laughs> that's a really interesting word you've used there, compromise. And I think that, that is right. But I think you could also use adapt and resilience as two other words, where the, the monarchy over the ages, there've been so there have been quite a few times when the, the whole future of the monarchy has come under question, and it's then been forced to adapt and it's been a lot more resilient, I think, than a lot of other our, of our institutions. And it, therefore it's maintained, I won't say it's maintained its entire role, but it's maintained its place in the whole makeup of the fabric of our society in a way that I think the Church of England, for example, hasn't. And I mean, that that's another thing that goes through the book, the role of religion. Um, I mean, going right back to the early times. Uh, and obviously I think in the, in the middle sections of the book and i mean going up to henry the eighth and then afterwards I mean, the role of the church is absolutely crucial to everything in a way that it just isn't any longer so i think it's adapted and it's shown a resilience i remember i mean, the only time in my adult life when i genuinely thought the monarchy might be uh under pressure was when diana died but very quickly, the, the, it sort of came back, didn't it? And it, and now I think the interesting thing is, a year on from Queen Elizabeth dying, a year on from Charles taking over as king, there's been no no debate about the future of the monarchy. No, the republicans aren't sort of suddenly gathering together and uh, creating a, a real Republican movement in a way in the way that I thought they probably would and, uh, and the media I thought would latch onto it and there'd be this massive debate about the future of our constitution the future of the monarchy it just hasn't happened well one thing that I think is
0: surprising and I wouldn't really have imagined is that the monarchy seems to have survived the modern age and what I mean by that is the magic is gone really I mean I think to an extent at least I mean do people really look at King Charles for example and get the same sense of awe and wonder that was woven around the Henry VIII and the Jameses and even Queen Victoria Edward VII I don't think so we see them now as people because they are people it's a bit like old Hollywood. There were lots of complaints about um, in the old Hollywood studio system, stars were protected and there was a kind of magic woven around them. We didn't see them at their worst. We didn't see their private lives. And now we do. And so stars don't have that same kind of magic anymore. But there are still Hollywood stars. So, again, I think that's that resilience
3: that you spoke about, Ian. It's, mm. they've almost, they're making it work for them. Miranda, I wanted to ask you, actually, do you think part of this endurance is down to the fact that the monarchy got a sharp shock during the interregnum where they were you know, removed for, for 11 years? And do you think, you know, Charles's predecessor, his namesake, that 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 was an important lesson for the subsequent monarchs, the overreach?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I agree with Ian about that concept of adaptability. And to that, I would add that I think the monarchy has endured um, partly because of what it is not, because of the options which have been in some cases tried, such as in the Republican experiment in the 1650s, um, or other options which you know we haven't tried, but which do seem to be less stable, uh, more political, and and less capable of kind of bringing a whole, the whole nation together in the way in which really only this kind of, Magic, unknowable magic of this sort of constitutional monarch we have now can achieve that. Um, but I definitely think that Oliver Cromwell is another reason he should be included in this discussion. Is that I think um, you know the idea that the, the statue of Cromwell should stand outside Buckingham Palace rather than outside Parliament, <laughs> because actually it's in large part thanks to him that we still have a monarch. It is absolutely true. There's some real truth in that. Um, not just for the obvious reason that. Um, under him, you know, we tried a republic, we didn't like it, we didn't like how military it was, um, and various other aspects of it. And so we reverted to our monarchy. That's a kind sort of a negative reason, but actually a positive one as well. Um, you know, there's an argument that Cromwell himself was very conservative. He himself was actually a monarchist. And gradually, over the course of his protectorate, the Republican regime morphed into a kind of quasi monarchy because that's actually what was going to be most palatable to the British public. And because of the person of Cromwell in that position as Lord Protector, if we we could have had a far more radical, far more Republican figure um, on the throne at that point, who would have sent the country in a much more radical direction. So for that reason as well, almost, there's this idea that Cromwell's protectorate paves the way for the return of the Stuart monarchy, because actually it's quite a similar uh, regime.
2: And that's really interesting, because the, the next book in the series is The Dictators. Now, that's different, because I've had to select The Dictators to be included. Here, I mean, okay, I included The Ringers, but you've got the list to go from. And uh, the, the the theme of The Dictators, I think in one, in one sense, and I haven't had actually many of the essays in yet, but I think one of the themes is going to be the pseudo-monarchical attitudes of many of the dictators. They take over power. Um, and then they take on a lot of the skill sets or a lot of the um, ways of governing of absolute monarchs. Um, we're not including any monarchs in the dictators, I mean, because people say we well, should include Henry VIII. Well, no, he's already been included in this book. But I think that there there are similarities between the two.
3: So that sounds like no Cromwell in the list of dictators which will please Miranda. No, no. I mean, I, I could just lift Miranda's <laughs> article, I suppose,
2: but um no, Cromwell won't be in it.
0: Well, I think Cromwell is interesting in that he seems doubly unpopular. Um He seems unpopular and people don't talk about him if they are very Republican. Why? Because his attempt at a republic is not something that modern republicans really want to associate themselves with. But then he's also unpopular with monarchists, because as you say, Miranda, he stripped away that kind of um, sense of majesty and power. He, He almost showed that the emperor had no clothes for a while. So he's in an unfortunate position for all he did he's caught between these two people who don't really want to talk about him or acknowledge
1: him. You're totally right Stephen um, he does get it from both sides uh, which is one of the things I like about him and why I find him interesting because if he can be hated on left and right um, and but also adored on le- on the left and the right you know there's some there's some sort of complexity there, some sort of contradiction we've got to kind of get to the heart of haven't we and that that is very very interesting.
3: Well, Cromwell seems to have had the last word on our discussion on Kings and Queens, which is a strange ending. But uh, the book's out now. So um, thanks very much. It's been really enjoyable discussion and uh, best of luck with it, Ian. Thank
2: you very much. There's also there is going to be a podcast series on each of them. I'm going to include interview each of the contributors about their respective monarch. We're going to put it out on uh, the, the Well, my Presidents and Prime Ministers podcast is going to be renamed Presidents, Prime Ministers, Kings and Queens, which is all a bit awkward. But that will launch sometime later this month.
3: Oh, I'll stick a a link in the uh, show notes for that as well. Great Great stuff. Well, thanks, guys. Miranda, Stephen, Ian, thank you very much. Thank
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you.
1: Thank you.
3: Thanks very much for listening. Plenty more great content to come, so please do subscribe and share. Next week it's female spies and later this month on the Film Club we're going to be doing a John F. Kennedy epic miniseries. First with 13 Days, the depiction of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then it's the big one, Oliver Stone's JFK. So I do hope you can join me. Until next week, thank you and good night. (music)